Welcome to Narratives of Asia. A podcast where students of all backgrounds are invited to talk about all things Asia. This podcast is by Asiatic Affairs Society from University College London, or UCL, which looks to create open and constructive conversations on geopolitics, business, technology, environment, culture, history, and more happening in Asia. Hello everyone, welcome to a new episode of Narratives of Asia. I am Maisima and I'll be your host for, for today's episode. I am a second year history, politics and economics student and I am from Azerbaijan. Joining me today is Mariam and Ulvia. If I could ask you guys to please introduce yourselves. Um, hello everyone, I'm Ulvia. I'm from Azerbaijan uh, and I'm a recent graduate of King's College London. I studied history and international relations, and currently I'm uh, here in Baku, Azerbaijan, uh, working for a regional, uh, for a local think tank, and that's about it. Um, thank you, Ulya. Um, my name is Maria Mehdiva. Like Ulya, I'm a King's College London graduate. Um, I've studied political economy. Um, right now I'm getting a degree in law, but I'm doing it from Azerbaijan um, due to the quite obvious uh, circumstances of 2020. Um, and I'm very excited for the um, for this podcast. Yes, likewise. Sorry, I didn't mention that. Yes, um, thank you very much for joining me today. Today we will share personal stories, some of which have been passed on from our grandparents about the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict, in addition to our own account and the impact of the conflict on our generation. First, we'll start with um, Ulvia and um, the story of her grandfather's deportation from Armenia in the late 1940s, which will provide a valuable insight into the relationship between Azerbaijanis and Armenians during the Soviet Union. So I'll pass on to you, Ulvia. Thank you, Isima. So uh, my story is not directly connected uh, to the Nagorno-Karabakh war, but as uh, stated by Asima, it goes a bit uh, to, into the history of Armenia-Azerbaijani uh, conflict in general. So uh, my maternal grandfather was born in Vedi, which used to be a part of Azerbaijan, but now currently is an LDA Armenia. And around the age of 9, 10, so which, would, which was late 1940s, uh, him and his family were forcefully deported uh, from their homes um, and from the region. Uh, and the entire experience, it was quite gruesome. Uh, for example, there's a story uh, I've heard about my grandfather's mother, who was forced to watch uh, all the older uh, male generation of her family uh, being burnt alive in their house before being deported to Azerbaijan, before like the rest of the family was deported to Azerbaijan. But uh, despite this, um, despite the ensuing generational uh, trauma, this uh, obviously installed into uh, my grandfather and his family, uh, I, I want to say that neither me nor any other uh, member of my family were raised with any sort of anti-Armenian uh, sentiment or any sense. No one held grudges against Armenian population as a whole, which to me is very important. And um, I guess, it, it, I mean, it wasn't something that defined uh, our views on the coexistence between two nations. Uh, in fact, me, myself, I learned about... Um, my grandfather's um, early years, uh, when I was at an older age, when I was more mature. Uh, and for example, uh, 
I have stories about my, uh, I have a story about my uh, smaller cousins who are young uh, teenagers right now. Uh, recently, this summer, they found uh, my grandfather's uh, our grandfather's identification card on his desk, and obviously, in the identification card, it states the place of birth, and his place of birth is Armenia, and that to them came in as a huge shock. Uh, they came rushing to us asking about. Uh, how it was possible that our grandfather was born in Armenia and what it means in general to the family. So um, uh, I guess uh, that was kind of uh, very um, telling of the generational shift caused by uh, by the Nagorno-Karabakh war, where now it, it comes crazy to us that it was possible for anyone in Azerbaijan to be born in Armenia or uh, vice versa. Um, yeah, I think it's it's quite a... A regrettable fact that a lot of the people who are um, both looking at the conflict from an outsider perspective and both be, like the parties in Azerbaijan and Armenia, they somehow or somewhat are reluctant to, to, to pay due attention to the fact that there were prior to the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict and um, I would say throughout the existence of the USSR and maybe even the um, the time before, well, definitely the time before, um, the the fact of coexistence uh, between the two nations, Armenians and Azerbaijanis in the Caucasus was a given. It was a reality. There were um, a lot of Armenians living in Azerbaijan, um, coexisting peacefully, um, maybe even considering themselves, like uh, definitely considering themselves uh, um, the effective, the um, the valuable part of society, and I'm sure there were um, a lot of Azerbaijanis living in Armenia, um, uh, both prior, um, well, prior to the to the conflict, um, and uh, although right now maybe in a way we are positioned to to view each other as inherently incompatible, although I myself and Ulya mentioned her whole family, despite the um the experience the deeply traumatic experience her grandfather um and his family had been subjected to um due to the um to the xenophobia or maybe um ethnic animosities uh, that happened that were maybe accumulating prior to the eventual um ex explosion um i would i would call it um in nagorno karabakh um despite that um uh, not a lot of people not a lot of people both from our from our past generations and right now um actually do subscribe to that rhetoric of azerbaijanis and armenians being inherently incompatible or um unable to coexist in one place because um as we see history suggests otherwise and um that is just uh, um maybe that is i i find that an important point to bring up um, right now, of old, like right now, more than any time, right now when we are facing the possibility of, you know, rebuilding, um, rebuilding peace in Nagorno-Karabakh between ethnic Armenians and Azerbaijanis who are finally able to return. Um, and Aisima, I think, um, do you mind if I also um, tell a brief story from my own generation <laughs> that um, has to do with uh, the demographic, the Armenian demographic in Azerbaijan? 
Yes, yes, of course, Mariam, go ahead. Oh, thank you. Um, so my story, um, it's all, it also concerns my grandfather, but uh, that story took place in um, closer to the um, to the eventual uh, dissolution of the USSR. Um, so it, that, that had taken place in 1989. And as we all know, the USSR was um, in a state of turmoil, I would say the entirety of the USSR. Um, and Azerbaijan, as uh, I'm sure any country, any republic that was part of it, was experiencing um, deep uncertainty, both political and economic, ideological probably. Um, so the, my father was a member of the Communist Party. He was uh, the secretary of the district committee for um, for Ismaili, which um, I would say that he was uh, just... Um, the in in the USSR terms, he was a district representative from his, uh, at that time for Ismaili, um, and um, he at that time, mind you, we're talking about eight, uh, 1989. So at this time, already some mutual, um, I would say, some expulsions happened um, from Azerbaijanis in Armenia, um, from Nagorno-Karabakh. Um, so ethnic tensions were already rising. Um, as we know, the talks of uh, secession from Azerbaijan uh, or possibility of Nagorno-Karabakh being joined to Armenia was already um, very widely uh, used in the discourse uh, from Armenian nationalists. And I would say the nationalist parties and the ideologists were gaining momentum at that time uh, due to the people's rising um, loss of faith in the communist system and um, the increasingly apparent demise of the, um, of the Soviet Union. So um, at that time, a lot of... Um, Ethnic Azerbaijanis, ethnic Azerbaijani refugees were starting to arrive both from Armenia and Nagorno-Karabakh um, in fear of their lives, in fear of persecution. Um, and uh, some clashes, they were bound to happen because there were nowhere else for them to go except for be, be placed in, um, in Azerbaijan. And a lot of um, refugees, my, my grandfather, he knew that he would have to deal and uh, accommodate for an influx of refugees from from Armenia, Azerbaijani refugees, and he knew from um, from the experience in other parts of Azerbaijan, regrettably, that um, uh, some clashes, some uh, like animosity was um, it was it was a sad reality at that time because people were angry and people were giving into that sentiment of hatred, that sentiment of resentment. Um, so what he did was. My grandfather, he he didn't he didn't want to give in to that sentiment, and um, it is it is very important. For, it's not important. It's actually it's very heartwarming for me to hear him say that story because I actually didn't know this story until the escalation of violence during the Second Karabakh War when I was talking more to my parents about their own experience with Karabakh to my grandparents about their own experience with the first war and the, um, their experience with coexisting with their Armenian neighbors um, in their respective neighborhoods and households and communities. And my grandfather, I've always known him to be a staunch patriot. Even though he was a communist at one point, he um, he was raised by a patriot and he never quite gave up, as I'm sure a lot of people um, under the Soviet regime like even surreptitiously, he he always he never gave up on his um, love for his own country, on his desire to to improve it. So, but despite that, he refused to treat the Armenians of Ismaili. And at that time in Ismaili, there were a lot of like as many as twelve 
um, villages that were predominantly populated by Armenians. Um, so he refused to suddenly treat them as, um, you know, alien entities, as not part of the citizens of his constituency that he was tasked with um, protecting and taking care of and representing. Um, so what he did was, um, and at that time it was, I would say that was uncommon. Um, he tried to, and he succeeded, <laughs> thankfully. He's, um, he took initiative to organize a safe transferal um, of this of the Armenian population of Ismaili to the border. At that time, it was uh, the border was um, Azerbaijan, SSR, and Armenia, Gazakh. Um, so he he would what he did was um, he needed the the buses. He needed some type of transportation um, for them. Um, because he didn't want them to fall victim to um, a violence that could ensue with more and more um, refugees, Azerbaijani refugees arriving from Nagorno-Karabakh and being um, uh, expectedly and obviously um, crushed, resentful, um, just deeply traumatized by their by the by the fact of being uprooted from their their whole lives, their lands to leave. Um, I'm not justifying any violence, but I'm saying that. Um, it's it's far it's hard and impossible and immoral for me to put to judge uh, the morality of their actions um, when I have myself fortunately never been in in their shoes. Um, so he was anticipating that, and he didn't want the Armenians of Ismaili to to be subject to that, to to uh, be subject to any type of mistreatment in in Azerbaijan. Um, and at the time, he he called the uh, deputy chairman of the Azerbaijan um, Council of Ministers, Asif Vasizadeh, Arthur Vasizadeh, sorry. Um, and he kept calling. <laughs> um, he was a stub He is a stubborn man. Um, I like to think that it's it's a generational trait that I maybe have inherited. Um, so he he refused to take no as an answer. He he kept calling, and I I know that my from. What he told me and my father is that the, the man, I think he wore him down <laughs> more than um, convinced him. The, the man was like, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll provide the transportation, just please leave me alone. <laughs> um, well, maybe not like that, but that's how my grandfather describes it. Um, so he was, he was finally um, provided with uh, 60 buses um, for, the, for the Armenian population of these 12 villages of Ismaili. Um, and he personally oversaw um, their packing. He personally oversaw their departure. Um, and I know like what he made a point of, um, I wouldn't say bragging, but he, he still recalls that with pride. And that is a very significant point. To, that is a very significant um, observation for me to make because he takes pride in protecting. Um, he, took, he, he took pride and he still take, doesn't hesitate to take pride in protecting the people that he's still treated as a citizens of Azerbaijan from harm, um, so he he talked to every single driver of those of the buses, and he was like, um, um, if any if a single hair is amiss on the head of any of the passengers, I will hold you personally responsible. And I am using um, gentler language now, um, <laughs> knowing my grandfather, he probably um, he was a little bit harsher. Um, but um, that is that in itself is a to me, to after what I have witnessed and what I, the rhetoric I have witnessed and the um, the narrative I have witnessed pushed both by the um, maybe independent experts or journalists and the nationalist fractions of on both sides is that oh no 
we like as there people in Azerbaijan were 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 waiting, uh, were all too happy to give in to the violence and resentment towards Armenians. Um, all of them uh, eventually gave into that animosity. But as a fact, I know that, uh, like, I'm sure that there are many stories like mine, and there are many stories like Ulya's. When although the family was subjected to, um, to to some unjustifiable violence from the other side, they still refuse to to dehumanize them. They still refuse to give in into that, you know, uh, rhetoric of incompatibility. Um, and I know for a fact that my grandfather, he still talks about um, all of the Armenians from Ismaili being transported safely um, and the drivers overlooking their transferal from the border before it was, you know, at the time, 1899, um, Although the Soviet regime was um, was still in place, it was crumbling. There was uh, people didn't know what was going to happen, and uh, you know the uh, the situation in Nagorno Karabakh was slowly but surely deteriorating, and there were more and more Azerbaijanis um, who were forcefully um, removed from there, who were forcefully expelled from there. Um, so it, it's a remarkable story for that time, but it's twice as remarkable for now. Um, because I think that oh I feel like I've talked for too long, <laughs> um, but I think that it's it's a it's a good indication of how things used to be back then and how things maybe should, should how we could the possibilities of what could um, become the reality in Karabakh in the future in terms of um, Azerbaijanis treating the um, ethnic Armenians as their citizens as people placed in their care as people placed in their, you know, the fellow citizens or fellow constituents and just 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 another minority that uh, another one of many minorities that still live happily and peacefully in Azerbaijan, um, that take pride in being Azerbaijan, that identify, that have the cultural freedom to practice the customs and the languages of their own ethnic um of their own ethnicities and cultures, but still identify as a citizen of Azerbaijan, and I think it's a, um, I think it's a, it's it's a wonderful story for me to hear, and for um, I think it's a good story for everyone to hear, whether they're from Armenia, from Azerbaijan, or just an out like person from an outside trying to gauge, uh, trying to gain some perspective on the on the conflict. Yes, thank you, Miriam. That was a very um, inspiring story. What your grandfather did was admirable and praiseworthy. Um, it also reminds me of a story that my grandfather told me about um, his ethnic Armenian neighbour. Um, during the first years of the, the First Karabakh War, he decided to move to Russia. And during that process, both him and both my grandfather and his community ensured um, that he was able to you know, sell his house at a reasonable price, that he was able to collect all his belongings, which not many Azerbaijanis um, deported from Armenia were able to do. Um, my mother, she recalls the physical state in which the, most of them arrived in, you know, with worn down clothes. Um, and, you know, most of whom were not able to belong there and um, collect their belongings. Um, but a point which you mentioned, which I think is extremely important, is that like all other ethnic minorities living in Azerbaijan, Armenians will also be free to um, practice their religion and culture as an Azerbaijani citizen. But I've seen, you know, um, this groundless and false narrative being spread by Armenian nationalists that Arme Azerbaijan would bring begin this wave of aggression against them. And um, I'd also like to note that the peaceful coexistence is not something which, you know, solely lives in the memory of the older generation. Um, 
individuals such as Onik Krakoyan, he's captured the relationship between the peaceful coexistence between ethnic Azerbaijanis and Armenians um, living in the same community in Georgia, which um, we will go on to talk more about. Yeah, I think that, uh, thank you for mentioning Onik, actually. Like, I think he deserves tremendous credit for being one of the representatives of the both international and Armenian communities that whose voice was, although not largely amplified during the most recent escalation and before, whose, I think, voice remains one of the uh, more reasonable and valuable um, in terms of the international um, and, inter, uh, and inter-Armenian and Azerbaijani discourse, um, because he himself... Um, uh, he has recorded um, extensively the, both the uh, coexistence of the Azerbaijanis and Armenians, as you mentioned, in a, in a number of villages in Georgia. I think the most, um, um, the most specific and maybe well better known example that comes to mind is um, his reportage on the, um, I, I can't remember the name of the village, but um, the village in Georgia where the Armenian pe- children would learn Azeri and Azeri children will learn Armenian to better, you know, to to better communicate with each other because when was was no and there was um it was it was I wouldn't say jarring it was just it was such a breeze of fresh air to see to it was I think it um it served as a type of like you know hope a uh, hopeful possibility for what we made like I hope one day witness in um, Nagorno Karabakh and around just um two communities um letting go of the of the trauma of the mutual trauma inflicted um, throughout both wars um and accepting um or even just like giving consideration to um to the coexistence that was once possible and I'm not saying that's because that sounds quite utopian you know two nations living in complete peace with um you know disagreements but um just because it seems impossible doesn't mean that it, it it should be you know i think the the initiative needs to come from both the leaderships on both sides um and i'm i'm very glad that our leadership has been channeling that on the high levels channeling their their support and their um um their readiness to make um efforts to accommodate the ethnic armenians who who want to who wish to remain in karabakh and become citizens of azerbaijan um, I think it, their initiative for that needs to come from the civil societies and leaderships on both sides. And um, I just, uh, right now, that is all I hope to see um, in any future developments um, for peace in Karabakh. Yes, and, and adding on to that, Mariam, the name of the Georgian village, which you mentioned, is um, called Sopi. And um, I remember a video, watching a video posted by um, Kirkayan, and it included a shot of a classroom with an ethnically Armenian teacher and ethnically Azerbaijani student. And as you said, it really is a breath of fresh air and evokes a sense of hope um, and perhaps is something that we should look to as an example moving forward. But um, I think it's also worth mentioning that the recent escalations brought light to the ethnic, um, to the group of you know ethnic Armenians living in Azerbaijan. I myself, in fact, recently found out that a a family member living in Ganja, um, she um, shares the same apartment um, building, um, with um, an ethnic um, an ethnic Armenian. Um, and I visited their home many times actually, but I don't it was never mentioned. I guess it was something they didn't really see worth mentioning. Um, but you know she. I spoke to her recently and she told me about um, their relationship and you sh- she told me about how, you know, um, sh- that, you know, the um, neighbour is an integral part of the, so- of the community 
and you know she attends weddings engagement parties birthday parties and there's also um close trust between them for example when they leave town they um give um they give each other the, um they give each other the um keys you know either to you know water their plant or to look after their pet um which perhaps um you could say that i had the same a similar reaction to um Ulvia's cousins when they um found their um, grandfather's ID um i was not shocked but i was perhaps surprised and intrigued by um such a story because like you said i was never because i was never i never encountered such as um something similar um that was so close to home um to build on to your points about uh armenian and azerbaijani cohabitation I don't know if you guys remember that uh, woman, uh, grandma from Ganja. Uh, so during the first uh, attacks on Ganja, on the civilian population of Ganja, she was one of the first civilian casualties. And then it turned out that she was actually Armenian. And other than that, um, I also recently learned about the Armenian's former defense ministers. Uh, I think his last name is Aratunyan. So his sister currently lives in Kurdemir, which is a region in Azerbaijan. And she's lived here for uh, her entire life. But, you know, instances like that weren't very uh, talked about before, before the recent war, the recent escalation of events. Uh, I'm not really sure about the exact reasons, but in my opinion, I think it's a lot, it has a lot to do with the national humiliation and just the trauma that the first Karabakh war left on the, the generation, the old the older generation and I don't think discussing uh, Armenia-Azerbaijani relations or just the conflict in general um, obviously we always uh, we always talked about the regions we've uh, that fell under illegal Armenian occupation and all of that but we never really talked about the details of the war recently as this war made it more possible for us to discuss um, kind of uh, the first war in more detail I asked uh, some members of my family who are of an older generation what their most vivid memories about the first war were. Without any distinction, like all of them, uh, first thing they told me was, oh, I distinctly remember uh, the day Shusha fell under occupation. I remember what I was doing on that day. Um, I remember uh, what how, what my feelings were when I heard about, uh, when, when they announced that uh, Shusha uh, has fallen uh, under Armenian occupation. Yeah, I think that... Um... It's it's quite a common um, it's quite a common experience with I think with everyone's um, parents and um, grandparents when it comes to their like when it comes to their recollection of the um, the first Nagorno Karabakh war they all vividly remember that like the days of the of the of the most like the most traumatic I would say the biggest losses um, for Azerbaijan at the time. Same with my parents. I was talking to my um, father the other day as well about um, in preparation for this talk, actually. And um, I was telling him about um, my own research, on, not research, like the the third party accounts, the independent accounts I've read about the um, the loss of um, of the surrounding region, surrounding seven regions around Nagorno-Karabakh and Shusha itself, actually. And he, me, he and my mom, and he, they, they actually in an eerily similar way to what Ula has described, they remembered like exactly the day. I, I feel like it's a, it's a response to a traumatic memory that your brain holds on into every detail that, um, that happened on that day. And they, they remember the days of 
loss of most I would I would say most importantly they remember Shusha's loss because that was just collectively a very difficult thing to 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 process and to live with due to Shusha's obvious um, cultural and collective significance for all Azerbaijanis. Yes, I agree. Um, it goes without saying that every uh, piece of land that we lost it was very yearned for, and, uh, yearned for and was sacred by Azerbaijani people. And obviously all the territories were mourned over. But Shusha, given its significant uh, cultural importance, left a very big uh, wound in the hearts of all Azerbaijanis, even those who were born after uh, the events of, uh, of the 90s. Yes, I also think it's worth mentioning that you know the liberation of Shusha evoked the same reaction from the Azerbaijani people as the as the signing of the peace deal, and people went out onto the streets, um, you know, and really and celebrated it the same way as they did the peace deal. And I think it's um, indicative of the fact that you know Shusha holds a special place in the heart of the Azerbaijani people. Um, you know, it's the heart of our culture. And you know, most of the artists and writers and composers whom we're likely to mention in a, par- in a conversation about art in, art in Azerbaijan were either um, born or educated in Shusha. Um, take, for example, Uzair Hajjibayev. He was born in Shusha. He's the composer of the music to our national anthem. And um, you know, the national anthem is sung by the Azerbaijani, Azerbaijani students every morning um, before um, class. So you know, the work produced by um, artists of Shusha um, is found in our daily lives. Yeah, I agree that it's um, immeasurable, um, given that, uh, as you mentioned, the great Uzair Hajibayev, his whole persona marks such a great impact on both the Azerbaijani history and the history of the, um, I would say, of the in the East, um, given that he is widely regarded as the founder of the classicism movement in the Azerbaijani music. Um, and as you rightly mentioned, he's uh, he's the uh, author of our national anthem, and he's the uh, author of the first opera to be written and performed in the Muslim East, Leili and Majnun. And other than Hajibayev, we also have um, well, Hajibayev is a musician, but we also have very uh, significant, very uh, renowned singers from the region of Shusha. So we have well, yes, there's the music side. Uh, to the cultural significance of significance of Shusha, even we we have to mention, I think Muham as well, uh, Muham, which is the Azerbaijani genre of vocal and instrumental arts. Uh, Shusha is home to that uh, genre of uh, to Muham. Other uh, significant people from Shusha, for example, uh, Mola Penavagif, who who was bo- who was both a poet but also a politician. He was the chief uh, vizier of Ibrahim Khalil who was the second uh, Karabakh Khan. And he's, he's, he holds a big significance in uh, the literature world of Azerbaijan because he established the realism genre in Azerbaijani literature. Uh, other than that, we also have Natavan, Khushudbani Natavan, which Mariam, as a, I think, poetry enthusiast, would know more about. Yes. Uh, yeah, Natavan is actually, she is, I think, also regarded as one of the symbols of Azerbaijani, of early Azerbaijani feminism. She is a poetess, um, the heiress, uh, the daughter of the last Karabakh Khan. She is, um, above all, she's just a very inspirational figure, I think, um, not only for Azerbaijanis, but I, I mentioned it again, I think for the um, entirety of the regime, um, she, she wrote... Um, the beautiful Gazelles and Rubaiyat that she wrote are still 
um, studied today in Azerbaijan, in Iran, in Turkey. Um, she is um, she was actually also founder of the first um, of uh, of the first literary society in Azerbaijan, um, Society of Friends, I think it was called. Um, um, the um, Majlisi Uns, yes. Um, she was overall like, I think, just uh, over. I already mentioned this with Izidir Hajibev, but I think it, it's applicable to Pushot Banina Tavan as well. It's just, you would be hard pressed to find an Azerbaijani person who didn't know of her, who didn't know of her legacy. And I think that's just overall, it's it's very indicative of the, of the, of the role of Karabakh, of the role of Shusha as a whole in our national identity, because all these people, they just, uh, one by one, um, if you want to, if you want to summarize how important Karabakh has been and will always be remains, how important Karabakh and Shusha is to Azerbaijanis, to the culture and the identity of Azerbaijanis around the world, you should just, as we are doing now, just list all of these people, all of these people that individually compose just uh, a narrative of what it means to be Azerbaijani, of the history, culture, arts, it, they all compose this national identity of our cultural identity. And I think Ulya, there is also, there, there is also Shusha as a whole, as a city in Karabakh, they also um, um, stronghold of the, of the history of Azerbaijan's initial independence, the first uh, democratic republic, right? Oh, yeah, I totally agree with you. I feel, uh, I mean, in general, Shusha is synonymous with Azerbaijan's poetry, art, and culture in general. So I totally agree with you on that. And uh, as you mentioned, uh, the brief uh, period of Azerbaijan's independence, um, for example, Ahmed Agaoglu, who was uh, a prominent Azerbaijani intellectual, and his most renowned work was written during the uh, brief uh, period of uh, Azerbaijan's first independence in 1918 uh, to 1920s. Yeah, to the Bolshevik invasion. Yes, and actually, um, Ahmad Ahoglu's daughter, Suraya Ahoglu, um, she's uh, she, she 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 was born in Shusha. Um, then she had to escape to Turkey um, following Azerbaijan's loss of independence to the um, in the Bolshevik invasion. Uh, yeah, and she was the first um, the first female lawyer um, in the Turkish history, and she also came from Shusha. Um, and I think that just. Um, <laughs> it's actually curious. I actually didn't know about that, so thank you for mentioning that. Yeah, it, it's a, it's actually like the more you learn about uh, the just the remarkable number of uh, historical figures of these people who have been champions of uh, innovation, of you know breaking the glass the glass ceilings in their perspective fields, while also carrying the Azerbaijani the Shusha identity is just. It's staggering. It's um, it's both inspirational. It's also very heartwarming, especially now that we know that Shusha has finally been um, freed from the occupation, and that um, Azerbaijani people whose roots um, are traced back to Shusha have the opportunity, the chance to come back to rebuild those lives, to maybe walk the fields at um, Natavan. That um, and actually, like Zayir Hajibayev, his whole family in Yazi, the one of the most renowned. Um, um, conductors um, in in the USSR and and beyond, like to walk the to visit this. Although sadly, a lot of them remain destroyed right now, or just in a were kept in horrible conditions. But we have the chance to rebuild, to return, to um, to pay our respects to the to the places that once served as the 
as a motherland, as a place of inspiration for those people. And I think that the idea is beautiful. Yes, I agree with you, Miriam. I think I think definitely the liberation of Shusha will inspire and has inspired many to dive deeper and learn more about the um, their historical significance and the um, the you know the work produced by the artists of Shusha. Um, that's all the time that we have today. Um, I'd like to thank our guests, Mariam and Ulvia, for joining me. Of course, thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having us. It was a pleasure. I'd also like to say that we hope that the stories shared by us at the beginning of the podcast will encourage the sentiment of peaceful coexistence between the two nations in the South Caucasus looking forward. Um, thank you to all our listeners, and we hope to see you in our next episode. Goodbye. Thank you all listeners for tuning in to this episode of Narratives of Asia. Dear listener, if you found this episode to be educational and learned something from this, do recommend this podcast to your friends and family by word of mouth or on social media. Tag us at UCL Asiatic Affairs on Instagram or Facebook. We would love to hear all of your thoughts on this episode. If you are interested in joining us on raising conversation about a certain topic related to Asia, don't be shy. Drop a message on our social media or email us at uclasiaticaffairs at gmail.com. I swear we're a cool bunch. Again, thank you so much for staying with us and stay tuned for another episode. We are Asiatic Affairs and this is Narratives of Asia.